Well, I want to welcome everyone to today's content. If I were to tell you that I was excited about today's interview, that would be an understatement. I think one of the most frustrating things and one of the things that I almost grieve at times is our society's inability to hold a both and. In other words, two things can be true at the same time. And I think that's one of the things that we see in our society right now are the extremes. You know, it doesn't take anything nowadays for someone to cancel someone or for someone to go into an unarmed place and unleash their fury. People are not able to hold a both and. And we have political issues. We have racial issues. We have cultural issues all across the board. And at the root of it, as a trauma uh, researcher, I find that people's ability to hold things in paradox is severely limited. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna have an expert that actually uses a modality uh, called DBT join us today. And we're gonna look at the concept of radical acceptance. And I think this is not just a philosophy, this is a skill set that we find missing in our society at a fundamental level. And before I introduce our guest, I want to ask you, please hit the subscribe button I so appreciate those of you who watch my videos every single week all the way through. And if you haven't hit the subscribe button, please hit it right now. It pushes it up in the algorithm. Also, if you hit the like button, it also pushes it up as well. And I can take all, I can use all of the support that I can possibly get. Without further ado, Hope, welcome to the channel. Thank you. Thank you, Kyle. I'm, I'm, Glad to be here, and uh, luckily you're a colleague, and uh, this will be a great conversation to have. It's very timely. Absolutely, and so I just want to kind of give a little bit of an introduction before you give yours. Uh, Hope and I work together at the Attachment Trauma Center of Nebraska, and I've, I've known her uh, for years. I've been there since 2015, and she is someone who specializes in an area that I am not competent in as it relates to radical acceptance and DBT. And so, Hope, why don't you tell folks a little bit about your experience and then your specialty? Thank you, Kyle. I am honored to uh, to be in this space with you to, to talk about this. I initially started working with kids and became really interested in play therapy. And uh, while I was doing that, I was also doing some volunteer work for a local advocacy group, a nonprofit, who had a domestic violence, sexual abuse, sexual assault crisis line. And so I did that for a number of years. And after graduate school, uh, I actually found myself accepting a paid position with this advocacy group, and I joined their clinical team. And so uh, within this advocacy group, uh, this clinical team, we're, we're, we're working in the trenches with folks who are living with and in domestic violent relationships, uh, people who have suffered possibly uh, a childhood sexual abuse, uh, or maybe it's someone who's recently been sexually assaulted and they hired me to be their sexual assault, sexual abuse counselor. Uh, really all we had at that time was support groups, which were essential. The only thing is, is what we knew is it, it wasn't working and that people weren't feeling better. And so we knew we had to do something different. And I'm not going to take credit for the work that that clinical team started before I got there. But by the time I got there, uh, they were well on their way on uh, establishing a DBT team. Uh, I consider this this group of colleagues as my home group. And uh, because what we knew is we were working with trauma survivors. This is pre-trauma-informed uh, care. And uh, we knew that we needed to offer something other than just support groups. And so, uh, so we took off. We started a DBT program and we started seeing people recover what a lot of people don't realize is that DBT also asked the therapist to be practicing these skills. Hmm. So we didn't get burned out. So we, you know, were less likely to get burned out working with this population. Uh, Linehan actually had started her research in, uh, in the 1970s. And, uh, and that was one of the reasons is because of this population uh, really high rates of suicide or suicide attempts, 
self-harming. And so when we started this DBT program, we noticed that those incident rates were, were decreasing greatly. Mm -hmm. uh, we also, you know, explored other modalities uh, other than DBT. We began getting trained in EMDR, exposure therapy, uh, seeking safety. In fact, a colleague and I even spent two weeks in Philadelphia studying with uh, Edna Foa at the University of Pennsylvania, her anxiety clinic. So uh, it wasn't just DBT that we were exploring. We were eager to to find anything that would help us work with trauma survivors because the uh, the research was still uh, was still early. Um, although with the uh, with DBT, um, that really began an explosion. Once Linehan had become published in 1993, that really um, uh, the, the research really began exploring. You know, other than just uh, individuals with high suicidality, um, we also recognize that uh, DBT was effective for other symptoms that people were experiencing. So the reason why I think that what you just said is really important uh, is because DBT is situated amidst other modalities. So for example, when I'm seeing a client, a, a trauma survivor, and I'm treating their trauma, I oftentimes will recommend that they also get put in DBT or RODBT, which is another analog that we'll get to. But I recommend that because when I'm dealing with people, when you and I are trying to help people with their trauma, we have to actually do state work and then trait work. And sometimes you can do it concurrently. Sometimes it, one has to precede the other. In other words, a person has, has to have enough self in order to work through their stuff, right? So DBT is actually something that's very helpful for those of us that practice EMDR or those of us that practice IFS, which is internal family systems or brain spotting or neuro, like there's all these other modalities, but DBT is something that continues to be effective for the work that we do, I think for very specific reasons. Um, I'd like to, to have you kind of just give people an understanding of what DBT stands for and really just the basic concepts. And then we'll talk a little bit about who it's for. Right, right, absolutely. Uh, in, in fact, at the Attachment and Trauma Center, we view DBT, which is dialectical behavior therapy. We recognize it as a, phase one trauma treatment. And so mm. while we were learning about prolonged exposure and EMDR, which a lot of times are processing type therapies, um, you know, and they are cognitive behavioral, but, you know, more on the processing line and that there were some people who were unable to do that processing. And so we really saw DBT as a phase one trauma treatment. Uh, Linehan, when she began her her, her her research in the 70s and really in the 80s, she tried uh, the, the behavioral approach. And so, which is, you know, stop doing that <laughs> approach. And what we recognize is <laughs> it, it's not real effective, not, not long-term. We're yeah. seeing long-term results, uh, long-term efficacy when, uh, when we're just telling people you know, to stop doing that. Plus it felt invalidating for people, mm. you know? Yeah. But what, what about this environment I'm living in? What about, what about my family? What about my spouse? You know, what about those people? You're asking me to change, but you know, I, I got all this going on. And so people, a lot of times would not stay in therapy when it was just the behavioral approach. So Linehan recognized that that wasn't working. Uh, and so she went really to the other end of the continuum and uh, tried a humanistic approach, which was great in that, uh, you know, we were stressing the values and the goodness of human beings and human needs. It, it wasn't enough. And so uh, that's about the time that Linehan took a sabbatical uh, and really went on her own journey. Uh, it was a few years back that we we learned that uh, Marsha Linehan also had issues with ment her own mental health. And so this was really a group of people that she was passionate about and compassionate and, and determined to find 
a modality that would uh, that would give people relief, long-term relief, give people a reason for living, build a life worth living. Mm. So when she came back from her sabbatical, um, she too realized that um, it couldn't just be a behavioralist approach, stop doing that. If you would just do this, uh, everything would be fine. Uh, you know, it, it, she recognized, you know, that that was, that was helpful in, in producing change, uh, but we also needed that humanistic approach. And so that's basically what she did is she brought the two of them together. She synthesized the two, uh, which gave us dialectics. It's not, it's not just one or the other, it's, it's both and. And so it's that, it's that balancing of, of uh, acceptance and change and until people mm -hmm. feel accepted and their situation accepted that they are accepted how they've coped is accepted are they willing to risk change and mm -hmm. so uh so like i say it's through it's through you know the dialectics and and dbt really is one of the first modalities to bring mindfulness into mm -hmm. the model and so really through self-awareness and so through self-awareness through that mindfulness which you know we see so many different therapies using mindfulness and other clinicians really starting to work that into their practice it's not until we are able to uh you know through that our own self-awareness and self-acceptance are we able to see you know long-term healing and recovery i want to I want to zone in a little bit on the dialectic aspect for a moment and that both and that you were talking about. Um, I, you and I both treat folks who have uh, what we would call um, developmental trauma, which means that they got damaged when they in their kidhood. And we know that, you know, with trauma, you know, the part of us that gets traumatized stays young. So later on in life, we have to go back and do this developmental repair as an adult. And we know that our society expects people to have sort of the basics down in terms of your behavior, you know, in terms of compliance. Yet we find that there are folks who have these radical realities inside of them. In other words, they have these very, um, people are deeply conflicted and so they can be impulsive or erratic or, you know, there's certain diagnoses that we'll talk about here in a little bit. Um, that can make people impulsive or whatever. But when you are treating people, and what are some things that you're looking for in a person's, you know, deficits that make them a candidate for DBT? Well, uh, you know, now I would tell you, now what I know now, I would tell you uh, businesses could improve their work environments with DBT skills. Uh, elementary schools, high schools, uh, uh, if they implemented, in fact, some even do, maybe just the, the, uh, the, the mindfulness aspect, but uh, friends and family of individuals who have been diagnosed with a mental health disorder. Um, but initially, DBT was specifically for people who were under controlled. Uh, you mentioned RODBT earlier, and uh, that now is targeting a population of people who we, we're referring to as over-controlled. Mm -hmm. And so Linehan's DBT, uh, were, that's really for people who, who do have a difficult time containing, who have a difficult time coping with... Uh, with intense emotions and so their only outlet is uh, to use uh, abuse substances where they may self-harm uh, may acquire an eating disorder and mm -hmm. so it's not uncommon for for us to be working with a dual diagnosis and so but it's it you know it's especially for individuals who have experienced like you were talking about developmental trauma it's it's not uncommon but it's primarily for individuals who have a difficult time uh, regulating their own emotions they are unable to stay within that window of tolerance mm -hmm. yeah let's talk window of tolerance for a moment because i think this is where most people 
um, they lose their most important battle. And it's the ability to uh, be able to grow their window of tolerance to a level wherein they can do the radical, radical acceptance, which we'll talk about here in just a moment. But a person's window of tolerance, so, you know, window of tolerance is the, the part of me um, that can handle big emotions. So when I have big feelings, hopefully I have big skills. And so what happens with something like DBT or people who've been through trauma and they need DBT is they have big, big feelings and low skills, which is problematic to your point because we get desperate and we do, you know, really big behaviors to, uh, you know, give some sort of exhaust for the, the feelings that we're having. And so for a moment without, and I really want to be careful if you're listening to this, you know, we are not here to diagnose anyone. We're not here to say that if someone is in DBT, they have bipolar, they have borderline, they are narcissist, they are dark impact. We're not saying those correlations are necessarily uh, going to be there if you're listening right now. What we're saying is that there are trends. And so for a moment, Hope, uh, what types of diagnoses are probably uh, most consistent with those that seek DBT? Well, initially, when, when Linehan first started her research, it, she started out with individuals who were diagnosed as having bi a borderline personality disorder. Um, and I was borderline personality disorder, right? And so I'm with you, Kyle. I, I, I uh, would love to <laughs> get rid of disorders, uh, <laughs> diagnoses. Uh, but uh, insurance companies require that we do do that. Uh, and it, it kind of gives us a working framework, for, you know, from, from where to start uh, in, in treating someone. But initially, that's, that's what DBT was developed for, was for individuals who were, had a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. What is borderline for the people? Borderline dis borderline personality disorders is really on on the border of of neurosis and and um, you know having a difficult time staying within reality, and so um, uh, you know borderline personality is uh, is unfortunately uh, I think back when I was in graduate school. And uh, people who were given that diagnosis, they talk about it, how it was a death sentence for them. When I was in graduate mm. school, the recommendation was refer. Wow. Right? Um, I, I knew then that it wasn't right. <laughs> um, who do I refer to them to? Who do we refer them to? Hmm. And that's how I knew that a lot of times trauma survivors were, were being judged for, hmm. for coping. Uh, there had to be a way to reach this population. I, I really appreciate your embodied, integrated response right now. You know, we talk about this stuff at a high intellectual level, but in actually working with it, uh, we, I mean, you become more human, the more you work with pain, hopefully. Um, but you know, there's a testimony to being a clinician <laughs> and there's a side of humanity that we get in touch with that it, 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 it moves you, you know, there's no, you know, people are not their pain. They're not their diagnosis. Um, and unfortunately, we do live in a society where you get judged more for your response than you do for what pain uh, is occurring in you or what was done to you. People care more about what you do than the pain that you're in. And that, that what you're even expressing right now is part of what I feel. Um, and there are certain people whose deficits are so profound <laughs> that... Their behavior makes sense in some ways as it relates to the pain that they're carrying. <laughs> and I think that's really hard for a society who really majors in compliance and behavior mod um, to understand. 
And I think we're finally at a point where mental health is finally being embraced differently. But we still have an incredibly, we have incredible, we have a lot of mileage to go. Well, Linehan talks about it, someone approached her and said, aren't these skills that your mother should have taught you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but not all of us got that. Not all of us had mothers who knew how to do that or were able to do it uh, just for whatever reason. And so, you know, on, on the outside, some of these skills might look simplistic, and uh, but really, for, for some people, these are just, these are skills to help them build a life worth living. Mm. Wow, that's... I think maybe some of us don't understand that there are those who are so desperate um, that they're maybe looking for a way out. And so DBT, as you had mentioned with suicidality, is imperative for certain folks who they are not able to manage the chaos on the inside. If you could just kind of give people a little bit of a, an understanding of the structure of DBT in terms of the group format and how long in terms of duration and the frequency of it, how do you like to run your programs? Well, we try and run our program as close to fidelity as possible. Okay. So as close to the way that Linehan developed it, which requires that you participate in individual therapy and group therapy once a week. And so uh, in group therapy, we are, we are teaching, we are practicing, we are learning skills every week for a year. We ask everyone to commit to one year, which is not easy for people to do, uh, but uh, most people who, who are coming to DBT are ready. Um, there are some people who think they're already and so you know we try and look at um, obstacles that might get in the way but for, so one year is is what we're asking for and so we work out of the manual that uh, Linehan developed in 1993 actually she came out with the second edition in 2015 uh, I love her new manual and there are four chapters that we go through twice so we go through the four chapters once, and then we go through the four chapters again. And those four chapters are core mindfulness, distress tolerance, emotion regulation, and interpersonal effectiveness. And we spend for sometimes six weeks, four to six weeks in each one of those chapters. And in between each one of those chapters, we're reviewing and reinforcing core mindfulness skills. And so... Um, like I said, core mindfulness, dis uh, distress tolerance, emotion regulation, interpersonal effectiveness. Uh, a lot of times I have people who, who are going through the book the second time and they see their writings from the first time and, and a lot of them will admit, I, I, I don't even remember writing this. Wow. <laughs> Was that me? Um, just because sometimes it just, it takes people some time just to, to get present and to get comfortable, to trust and allow and themselves to be vulnerable. It's not a group where you would go and say, hi, my name is Kyle and here's my story. And so immediately when people hear that, they're relieved. Mm -hmm. uh, not everyone's ready to tell their story. Uh, unlike support groups, which I think that was great for people to have the support, but a lot of times people were getting triggered all over the place by hearing everyone's story. And so uh, that didn't always have a good ending. Uh, so we don't, we don't talk about that, but how we do get to know one another is each week there's gonna be a homework assignment. And so when you, when you do your homework, when you're gonna be presenting that in group, you know, I always tell people, make sure that you do it on something that you don't mind talking about in group. If it's something uh, that you don't feel comfortable, well, we, we can do that in our one-on-one -on -one session, in our individual therapy time. So in group, uh, is to, is, uh, each week there'll be a coordinating worksheet with whatever that week's lecture uh, uh, learning material is. 
So uh, group is two hours. Uh, I facilitate two groups. Uh, one group is Tuesday evenings, 5.30 to 7.30. The other group is Wednesdays uh, from 10 a.m. until noon. And then I know that my colleague Lindsay Cruz also facilitates a DBT group on Thursday afternoons. Uh, does but, does uh, Teresa my, do teams? She does. Thank you for, for mentioning that because we have we have found uh, DBT to be quite effective for adolescents. And so um, and so not only Teresa but also Amy Simons has oh. also taken on uh, is also facilitating uh, a group for teens. So um, that was much needed uh, addition to our team was uh, another teen DBT group. So um, once a week you go to group, uh, we usually start off with a mindfulness activity. We go through everyone's homework, which is also a real learning component because you get to see, uh, you get to see how other people are integrating the skills into their life. And DBT is an open group. And so there are people who are starting and ending at all different times. Um, now, it, um, I only have about 12 people at the most in my group, so there's not like 50 people going to be in this group when you show up. Uh, we're actually, since COVID, we're still doing groups on Zoom, uh, which I think I have finally mastered. We don't start group off with a mindfulness. Uh, instead, we do that with a check-in, a check-in in terms of what emotion can you identify with right now? What is it that you might be feeling? Just one emotion, and then uh, what's one skill that you've used effectively over the last week? What's your level of distress right now, zero to 10? And what's one skill that you can use while you're in group mm. to help you be in group today? Because we need skills just to be in group sometimes. So, um, so we go over everyone's homework, we take a 10 minute break, we come back, and we go over new material, talk about the homework. By that time, so two hours have flown. Yeah, so th there's so many things I'm thinking. First of all, if you're listening to this and you're on YouTube, uh, please hit the subscribe button, the like button, the bell notification so you can get all the videos and coming up and so forth. Just want to remind you of that. Um, I want to, just for a moment before we go to radical acceptance, because I think radical acceptance is the thing that will apply to the most people. And I love the concept of radical acceptance and how necessary I think that concept is for where we're at in, in our culture. But go back to those four those four uh, concepts for a moment because I think that, that was that's underrated, the journey that you guys take people through in terms of, could you just briefly give a little bit of a description to each of those core concepts that you mentioned earlier? Sure. And then I would add in the individual therapy, what we're doing is we are trying to integrate the skills that they're learning in group into their treatment, what it is that they are working on in their in their individual therapy. We are trying to weave and integrate those skills into their life. Uh, one thing that makes DBT different than traditional therapy also is that uh, there is a telephone protocol for contact in between sessions, mm. if necessary, uh, which is uh, darn near taboo in most therapeutic relationships. But in, in dialectical behavior therapy, we have a telephone protocol. Um, it's not a therapy session, but if someone is in need uh, some coaching outside of session, they've met a, a, a skills breakdown. If they are concerned that something was left undone in therapy or maybe had some residual feelings after therapy, instead of having them ruminate or obsess or be concerned about their next session, I would rather have somebody call me and we have a 10, 15 minute conversation about it just so that they don't um, get themselves worked up about something that, that may or may not be true. Mm. But, uh, so yeah, those, those four chapters, um, in the, in the core mindfulness skills, we talk about, um, the behaviors that, that make up mindfulness. And so we, we practice observing, we practice describing, we practice participating, 
and how we want to observe and describe and participate is that we want to do that in a, a non-judgmental way, a one mindful way, and in the most effective ways possible. So do what works um, is our motto. Uh, so in the distressed tolerance chapter, uh, that's broken down into a couple of different sections. And the first one being crisis survival skills. So crisis survival skills are when you have a crisis and she breaks down what is considered a crisis, but when you are in crisis and um, there's not a whole lot you can do in that moment um, so that we don't make the crisis worse, what are some things that we can do? Hmm. Because that typically is the, 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 the skills breakdown point where people, they don't know what to do with all of this. Emotions get really uh, intense, they get really big. And that's when people want to start self-harming. Um, they want to start drinking or, you know, there's a bajillion ways as human beings can numb out. Um, but that's typically when, when it happens. And so we teach crisis survival skills. Uh, and uh, the, the other part of that chapter is reality acceptance skills. That's within the distress tolerance chapter. Um, because accepting reality is often, you know, connected to tolerating the moment. And so that's where you'll find the concept of radical acceptance, which there are some people who have an adverse response to the word radical, <laughs> especially in today's climate. I'm like, okay, it's going to be okay. Okay. <laughs> Nobody is forcing you to do anything, okay? Just hear me out. I'm really just trying to acknowledge reality is all we're trying to do in the, in the reality acceptance skills where we talk about radical acceptance. And then we have the emotion regulation chapter where we are teaching people what emotions are for, uh, that we all have them. <laughs> um, I don't care what you tell me, what you say. You may not be aware of the emotions, but they're there. You have them. You're born with them. And why we were born with them, why they are there, and how to use them to your benefit. Uh, to, how to keep the, how to use those emotions to keep you safe. And so uh, we, we, you know, just try and explore having emotions, naming the emotions, recognizing through our mindfulness skills of what that feels like to have that emotion. Um, and so after the emotion regulation chapter, uh, I teach the interpersonal effectiveness chapter, which I do not teach it necessarily in the order that Linehan has it laid out in the book. Uh, I leave interpersonal effectiveness to the end per se. Uh, to me, the way my brain works is let me teach some containing skills, some distress tolerance skills, learn about your emotions, what's going on with you right now, before you start using your words, before uh, you start trying to communicate that with someone else. And so um, I love you, Marsha, but I'm not teaching it second chapter. So <laughs> So those are the different chapters that, that we go through. And then once we're done with and, and each chapter, we uh, in between each chapter, we review core mindfulness. Once we're done with the interpersonal effectiveness, we start all over with core mindfulness. Thank you for breaking that down because I, I just sometimes as a therapist, you know, we, we, we use these modalities. These are like philosophies for psychology and helping people to get well and, we we can see the uses. The use cases are far beyond just our therapy room. They're in society. Like there are massive deficits in people being able to just observe. Let's just go to the first one, the core concept. Observe. Non-judgmentally. Mm -hmm. Like I, I I we have an election cycle coming up at the end of next year. Again, we are unprepared, woefully right. unprepared as right. a society, as a culture, right. to be able to observe 
without being uh, just baited into being reactive. And not only is it something mm -hmm. that is a tendency, this is something that's normative. Like this is kind of the way things have become. Becoming. Yeah. And, and so mm -hmm. anyway, just that observe, like, so if you're listening right now, I want you to think for a moment. You know, I'm, I, I do podcasts that are, you know, kind of edgy and, and that are provoking, you know, towards change and all. Just for a moment, though, if you're listening to this, I want you to think, do you have the ability, not just the ability, do you practice the ability to observe situations? They, in DBT, they, if I'm not mistaken, there's a concept called wise mind. Absolutely. Um, and, and could, you, could, you, could you get into that for just a moment? My wise mind is... Uh, even though we'll have a never, another election coming up, nevertheless, I, I share the world with people who feel just as passionately about their beliefs and their opinions as much as I do. I share the world. We share the world with each other. Yeah, and you'd mentioned reality acceptance. Uh, the term that I... I want to get to now that I think is so important is this idea of radical acceptance. And this is something that I, I'm so, guys, you guys hear me so often, hold a both and. I have people reach out to me over email, Facebook Messenger. I have people, you know, over phone call. Kyle, what do you mean by hold a both and? What I mean by holding a both and for those, my audience is a little bit more of the like spiritual religious, is it's that idea of truth and grace. It's the idea of mercy and judgment. It's the idea of sin and forgiveness. It's not one or the other. And typically what I find, whether it's in my practice or in my ministry, is that people who go through a traumatic experience, they really lose their ability to hold a both and. Now, part of why I find this to be the case some of it's the brain data that we have. So for example, when we go through a traumatic situation, our brain wants to find out and locate and orient towards the threat as soon as possible. Well, when we go through trauma, you know, and, and you know, this, this idea of like consistent trauma, durable trauma, over time, our brain kind of seeks to make decisions even more quickly. Our limbic system becomes more charged and the nervous system now becomes unhealthy. So we want to help people's nervous system get well, which I think is also important as it relates to mindfulness. And I'm so glad that that's what DBT is built on as well. But the reason why I say that is because, you know, Hope, this is kind of the, our setting right now is, is that uh, people are charged. They, all that energy is in the body and that's becoming homeostatic. That's becoming normal to walk around on edge. It's becoming normal to not get closure about the things that have happened in your lives. And what I find oftentimes hope is people have lives that are controlled by pain. Well, the reason why I'm having you on today is because I think this aspect of radical acceptance could be liberating, could be unburdening to certain people who find themselves fixated on things that trigger them. So could you break down just a little bit more of this concept of radical acceptance? Well, Linehan talks about radical acceptance as being the pathway out of hell. There you have it. <laughs> um, you're right. Um, it, it does allow you uh, some freedom when you are able to radically accept. Now, radical acceptance is not just a skill that we teach in DBT, but Radical acceptance, acknowledging reality is a process. Mm. That's really a process. And so while in group, we might talk about ra radical acceptance for two weeks in class, that's an ongoing process. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be practicing some radical acceptance the day I take my last breath still be practicing some radical acceptance. And so it's it's really a process. It's really not a place to get to. There will be times when when you can accept something and there'll be times when you'll find that very same thing that you thought that you accepted, uh, that you're having a more difficult time accepting it. 
And so some people will say, I thought I, thought I was accepting. Um, I thought I had. I thought I did that work uh, until, until they've had a new experience and that, you know, and that gives them pause. But real, uh, uh, radical acceptance is just that. It's, it's, acknowledging, it, it's acknowledging reality. It's acknowledging facts. Um, whenever we are fighting reality, we are suffering. It takes radical acceptance, acknowledging reality makes ordinary pain manageable. Wow. Can you say that again? That's profound. Non-acceptance creates suffering. And so when we say that's unacceptable, um, when we say this shouldn't be happening, whenever I find myself saying this shouldn't be happening, I know immediately I hear it, I'm fighting reality. And so the fact is, is that it is happening. I am in this place. This is happening. This person is this way. Now, what do I want to do with that? How do I want to navigate this now? And so in radical acceptance, there's freedom. And in, in fighting reality, um, you know, when we're talking about uh, in, the, in the religious community and people who, uh, people who have maybe been hurt by religion, uh, to through radical acceptance, can we acknowledge that this happened, that this person, uh, it, it, that's what it frees you. It, it frees you from taking responsibility and putting it on the person who, who did hurt you, who told you lies, who hurt you, who hurt your body, who hurt your spirit. And so that we can stop taking responsibility for what someone else did to radically accept who we are as human beings to radically accept my flaws my weaknesses mm. only until I am able to radically accept can I offer that to someone else or can I live fully a full life that's beautiful hope I, I could listen to you all day <laughs> I mean that um I could probably talk about this all day. Yeah, I, I, this, this charges me. There up. This really is... is so much to talk about when it comes to acceptance, radical acceptance. So, uh, you know, there may be some of your listeners who, who, who may have their own questions like, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about this? And what about that? I get it. But in a nutshell, that's what we're, that's what we're teaching. Yeah. So, uh, Going back to the, the idea of the religious piece, because I, my listeners, many of them are in different sort of orthodox spectrum, uh, on a different place on the spectrum as it relates to orthodoxy, which is how tightly I feel like I hold to what scripture says. And some people are very literal. Other people are a little bit more organic. Regardless, um, some people hear radical acceptance and, and maybe in their mind, it's kind of like this idea in scripture of surrender. So surrender is best seen in the use case of Jesus Christ. He is on the cross hanging in physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, this is kind of an interesting moment wherein somebody who's been persecuted and been falsely accused has now been put to death in the most horrible way. But then in the midst of their suffering, um, some sort of understanding of reality is taking place. And then we see this move to forgive. And then this understanding that what they're what they think they're doing, they actually have little no little to no understanding of. So I'm wondering is if if people on their journey to, to radical acceptance, A, get to a place of surrender. Surrender doesn't mean resignation. <laughs> I think some people think, oh, right. surrender means I don't care. Right. No, I think. And right. And acceptance doesn't mean approval. Acceptance does not mean approval. It doesn't mean compassion. It doesn't mean passivity. And believe me, 
in DBT group and DBT class, when people hear this concept, I'm already ready for the pushback. Uh, and I just, I, I just let it happen, you know, push away. Tell me about that pushback for a moment. <laughs> what, what, what do you notice? About people just want to start fighting you. <laughs> they just, they want to start fighting you. No. What do you mean? I have to accept this. This, I, no, what they did was wrong. It wasn't right. I agree. And so I'm not trying to talk you out of that. What they did was not okay, but it happened. It did. And the sooner that I can accept who they are or who I am or what happened, the sooner I can, I can move into change when I am bound by non-acceptance. I have a terrible mm. time moving out of that and progressing towards. I like the language you use around I'm bound. So in other words, non-acceptance can be a form of bondage. It is. I, I think it just, it, it, it keeps us closed off, uh, which, you know, for some people that there is a sense of safety in that rigidity. Uh, and I think that's the pushback. Don't tell me <laughs> what's best for me. Uh, these people need to. These people need to know. These people can't get away with this. And and somehow by accepting, they feel like they're giving something up. You're not giving anything up. But just accept what is. Can you accept just what is? There are people who think and feel differently than you do. We can validate you and we can validate them. It doesn't mean you're wrong and they're right or they're wrong and you're right. And as people grow, I think their understanding of what it means to be human develops. So for example, uh, everything I'm hearing you say, Hope, is just based in uh, this ability to articulate what it means to be human. So in other words, what I'm hearing you really say is, it happened. Part of what it means to be human is things happen that are outside of our control. Part of what it means to be human is that people have power over us and can damage us against our wishes. Part of what it means to be human is the fact that you cannot escape vulnerability. Part of what it means to be human is that sometimes we feel ashamed about things that were done to us that weren't our fault. It just, that humanity seems to really be at the base of what you're saying today. Right. And while putting the responsibility on someone else, you know, to, to stop accepting that is, you know, is your responsibility. But, you know, you, you talk about, uh, you know, I think even Jesus radically accepted how, how the disciples, how some of his disciples were behaving. Yeah. Uh, Jesus. Yeah. It's a it non-judgmental stance. It's what we teach in DBT. <laughs> it's what we teach in mindfulness is a non-judgmental stance. Mm -hmm. with, uh, with acceptance. Um, it just, it frees us. Uh, it frees us. And it frees us to, to listen to other people, to be with other people that are different than us. Real quickly, RODBT. Uh, so I like this, and then we're going to close with some resources, this idea of uh, under-controlled versus over-controlled. Obviously, we're talking about folks who have these over-the-top experiences that sort of come out and they can't deal with it. And then there's under-controlled, which is actually a real issue as well. Um, could you just share a little bit about that? Right. So here's my comical way of describing it. I mean, we all have to laugh at ourselves, right? Yes. Um, I, I teach the people, uh, me included sometimes, who freak out. And, you know, we see it. They, they can't hide it. And RODBT, the under-controlled, um, a, a lot of times you don't see it. Um, they look like they are, they're always in control. 
calm, cool, and collected. Uh, kind of reminds me of Marty Bird on Ozarks. You know, you know, just inside, he's got to be seething. <laughs> but he always looks calm and cool. Anyway, what happens with people who who are over controlled is that it's in there. It just begins to leak out mm. when they go home. Uh, that's that's usually when when uh, they have a difficult time containing. And so, um, over controlled, uh, like I say, usually you know puts looks put together. And I'm not saying that put together people are over controlled people. I'm just saying that typically it's people who have a difficult time expressing, who have a difficult time accessing those emotions. The individuals that I'm working with do not have difficulty accessing emotions. And then what are some resources that you'd like to recommend? Books, workshops, um, you can you can tell us a little bit about the groups you run, whatever may have you. Right, right. I, um, I one of my favorites, I would recommend Tara Brock. I don't know if you've read any of her books, but... Um, she has this uh, book on radical acceptance. You can also find her on podcasts, um, social media. She also ha runs training groups on uh, radical acceptance, uh, mindfulness groups. Uh, Jack Cornfield writes the foreword in this book. I would also recommend anything by Jack Cornfield. <clears throat> but uh, there's um, there's n not a whole lot of information out there about radical acceptance, but um, you know the concept of acceptance has been around for has been around for decades. But anyway, those would be my re recommendations. Absolutely. Well, I'm very, very, very thankful that you uh, shared your time today, and I'm I know it will bless a lot of people. I'm going to tell you what I tell my guests that uh, we are with you and God is for you. Hope. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you for having me. Well, if you've been listening through this entire uh, episode, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, my hope is that it's a blessing to you and that it's helpful for you. I will make sure to put everything down in the description. And if you're listening to this on podcast, I will make sure that it is in the description as well. I'll see you next time.